I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 54 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week will stomp us through the world of glam rock, Slade drummer Don Powell. Slade is one of those bands that was huge in England, yet didn't translate to the United States, at least not until a decade past its heyday, after Quiet Riot had a top five hit with a 1983 cover of Slade's Come On, Feel the Noise. Come On, Feel the Noise was one of six number one songs that Slade had in Britain from 1971 through 1973, with the band reportedly selling more than 50 million albums worldwide. Slade was a foursome from England's black country. They began in the 1960s as the In-Betweens and briefly were Ambrose Slade before shortening the name. The singer, Nadi Holder, had a cheerful presence and a voice that could rip the top off a kipper's tin. He and bassist Jim Lee wrote the hits, and guitarist Dave Hill provided the crunchy riffs and flamboyant fashion sense. Don Powell, described as the band's dreamboat, supplied the power. Slade took off after Chaz Chandler, who played with the animals and managed Jimi Hendrix, began managing and producing the band. First, though, he had them become skinheads. How did the hair or lack thereof affect perceptions of the band? Their hair had grown back and then some by the time Slade moved to the forefront of the burgeoning glam scene. It also included Mark Bolan and T-Rex, David Bowie, Sweet, and tour mates Status Quo. The first of those Slate number one hits was Cause I Love You, with cause spelled C-O-Z and love spelled L-U-V. Then came Take Me Back Ohm. No H in Ohm. Mama, we're all crazy now. That's W E E R and C R A Z E E. Come on, feel the noise. Yes, that's come with a U and noise with a Z. Squeeze me, please me. More Zs plus a K in squeeze. And what remains a British holiday standard, Merry Christmas, everybody. Spelled the normal Xmas way. with the phonetic spellings, Don Powell explains. But as Slade was at its peak in July 1973, Powell was in a horrific car crash that killed his girlfriend and put him in a coma. He awakened very banged up and with amnesia, yet he rejoined the band within two months. Sometimes on stage, he had to ask band members to remind him how a song went. How did he get through this period? Did he ever feel the same as a musician and a person? Powell continued with Slade as it moved to the U.S. for two years in an effort to win over the American market. Then it returned to the U.K. with Punk on the Rise. Slade hit valleys and peaks, enjoying its first U.S. Top 20 hit, Run Runaway, in 1984. How 
did the heavy metal audiences of the 1980s compare to the glam crowd of the 70s? Slade plotted a tour with Ozzy Osbourne, but an unfortunate turn of events suddenly marked the end of Slade as a live band. They kept recording until Naughty Holder quit to become a British television actor and radio host. Powell and guitarist Dave Hill regrouped as Slade 2, which eventually became Slade again. But Hill fired Powell from that band in 2020. Powell discusses here what he sees as Hill's cold treatment of him. His new band, Don Powell's Occasional Flames, has released an album, Just My Cup of Tea, and songs with such titles as The Care Home Weekly Wednesday Glam Rock Sing-Along and Midlife Crisis. As always, the emphasis is on catchy choruses and a stomping beat. Powell also worked with writer Lisa Ling Falkenberg on a book, Look What I Done, My Life in Slade. Powell has many colorful stories to share, including how the band's stomping beat originated and how Sharon Osbourne and a shotgun convinced him to quit drinking. So come on, feel the glam in this week's Carol Pop with Don Powell. Slade is this very hard rocking, tough band yeah. with also these great hooks. Um, and, uh, but it's it's a, it's it's associated at least here with the glam scene, and that's seen as a very British scene as opposed to uh-huh. something. What what was so British about glam? And did you? I mean, obviously you. I mean, you were playing for a long time before glam even existed. Like, how did how did what you did become glam? Well, I think it was mainly because um, we wanted to be noticed, uh, noticed, Mark. You know, sort of everybody was playing the same like the same circuit and sort of basically getting nowhere. And then we did, uh, it was just on the start of the, uh, the glam scene. And then we, 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 we leaned ourselves that way as well. And, um, yeah, if I could say that Dave Hill was the worst one for anything like that, because <laughs> if I if I say if I tell you he's colorblind, that might might make a bit of sense. <laughs> but uh, that's what it was then. I mean, um, when the move first started, they they weren't glam, but they went they sort of went that way, and especially with when Roy Wood their main songwriter he left the move and the move folded and uh and he formed like wizard and right and they became sort of a, a bit more of a glam type situation mark you know right and your your band in the 60s it was the end betweens and and that was more of a sort of straightforward rock band with some more yeah. sort of bluesy thing going on yeah, then all the bands around them, we were all playing the same gigs, you know, and um, there was lots of great uh, places, especially in Birmingham, there's a place called Mother's, which was a great, um, great sort of club scene. That was, I mean, a, a lot of bands played there, you know, up and coming bands played there in the, in, in the late 60s anyway. And um, no, it was, it was a great sort of uh, learning curve, all, all the different places we used to play. I mean, we used to play a lot of the the bars really with with Jeff Lynn when he was before the uh, before uh, Electric Light Orchestra. Right. We had a group called the the Idol Race, and um, we used to play all the same places together. Even then, he always wanted to be one of the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then you were just then you hooked up with Chaz Chandler, who had been in the Animals, and then was managing Jimi Hendrix, and he got you guys to become skinheads. Yeah, 
But that was a that, that, that was wasn't only Charles there, Mark. There was our publicist, a guy named Keith Altham. He he just made a, a joke with Chas saying the things that's happening in the UK at the moment is the skinhead uh, idea. And Chas said, "Great idea." Anyway, he called us down to his office, Chas, and suggested about all this kind of thing. But uh, we went for it. He says, good, he said, I've already got the hairdressers booked. And um, so that we got there. We had really long hair there down to our shoulders. And uh, then we had it all shaved off in the afternoon. And I remember Keith Alfred, whose idea it was originally, he called Chaz up. He said, um, I think it might be a bad idea, Chaz. He says, too late. They've been to the hairdresser. It's all, <laughs> it's all been shaved off and that's it. But uh, it, it it went for and against us, Mark. I mean, sort of um, a lot of promoters are a bit wary about booking us because they, they thought um, their sort of clubs or, or ballrooms or whatever we were playing then, they, were, they thought they were going to get smashed up uh, by because the skin had, had a sort of a violent image and... Um, yeah, and uh, we, we we didn't we didn't have that image for all that long. It did get us noticed, but um, it it, uh, it wasn't very helpful to us, really. You guys had long hair, and then you had really short hair, and then you ended yeah. up with long hair again. Yeah, that's how it. much does how much does the hair affect how people perceive you guys? I, I don't know. I think, well, especially with, with the short hair when we had it shaved off because of the skinhead image, you know, like I said before, promoters are a bit wary about booking us because they thought we, they're, they're going to get their uh, venues smashed up, you know, but um, it, it's, it's a strange thing in England. I mean, sort of, um, especially in the, in the mid-60s, where it's like uh, long hair was was the thing uh, around that that particular period, and uh, it sort of went from one extreme to the other and then back again, you know, sort of thing. I don't know. I saw something that referred to you as Dreamboat drummer Don Powell. <laughs> and I, I don't know where Sorry. <laughs> you know, because you were like that, you were the cute one. And and did what did you get more attention um when you had the long hair than when you had the short hair? Um I think when I had the long hair, I think the short hair, I mean, because uh, I I was uh, I looked a bit more frightening when when I had the very short hair and uh, I, I was I was the one to always go for our money for the gigs because uh, they thought the promoter wouldn't argue with me so I was the one that went uh, went for the for the uh, the salary but I was probably the meekest one out of all the bunch you know <laughs> So, and you guys went from the in-betweens to uh, Ambrose Slade to just yeah. Slade. Yeah. And uh, and then at some point, sort of a trademark became the titles of your songs were sort of spelled out sort of phonetically. That's right. Um, how did that happen? Well, um when the the the, the really the the first number one we had, not Nutty Holder and Jim Lee had written this song "Cause I Love You," and we were trying to get sort of a a bit of a hard image, if you like, not particularly hard image, a bit more heavier image. And we thought, well, because I love you, sounds a bit sort of a uh, bit sloppy, really. So um, we took on the phonetic spelling, um, which uh, which was the way we spoke around our, our home area, really, Mark. And it, we thought it was, a bit of, it was a bit of an image, really. But 
we did get in trouble with the education authorities because they thought <laughs> we were sort of um, sort of teaching teaching the young kids the uh, the wrong way sort of thing. But then a few years later, the schools around our hometown started teaching. Uh, the phonetic uh, uh, style of spelling, you know, so uh, we were back in favor again after that. <laughs> was was there a conscious decision of, you know, yeah, we're just going to keep doing this. You know, mama, we're all crazy now. Come on, feel the noise. Yeah. You know, all these different ones. Goodbye. Yeah, it was. It, it, well, it, it, well, we thought it, it got us noticed the third time, first time around, Mark, because I love you. So we just carried on with it. You know, and sort of, uh, and it, it was just, uh, and that's what we were known for, really. I mean, sort of, you know, sort of, like I said, but we did get in the, in, into a bit of bother with the edu- educational authorities. Right. Yeah. And that was your first number one. And I think you had six of them in the UK in like two years or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was it, it was just like a roller coaster. I mean, sort of, I remember um, 1973 when we had four hit records, three number ones. And uh, and the number two, and when we had the record go to number two, they, everybody was saying that we were finished because um, every record we were having it was all, always going to number one. And when it went to number two, they said, oh, they're finished now. <laughs> it's just incredible, really. <laughs> so what do you think? Because you'd been making music for a while. I mean, like Slade was not an overnight sensation because, you know, it had been around in different versions yeah uh, what was it that, what was it that clicked that, that that suddenly propelled you guys to become the biggest band in england i, I don't know i mean the thing is uh, we, we were never out to sort of teach teach a message mark we just used to go out on stage and just have a good time and, and hope the audience did as well and we were basically a rock act also and um we got to uh, basically play anywhere and everywhere but what really clicked for us was in, uh, I think it was 1971, and there was a big um, festival in England called the Great Western Festival, uh, with uh, sort of 10 years after The Who, and people like Monty Python's flying, you know, like uh, circus they were on. There was a lot of big bands at the time, and um, we were just added at the last minute, and um, I remember one one of the promoters there was uh, an actor called Stanley Baker. I'm not sure whether he's that that known in in, in the US. Uh, there was a big uh, film called Zulu, which he was, uh, right. he was part, part of. And that that was a big hit in England, and he was the co-promoter of this big festival. And Noddy Holder brought him on the stage during our our set, so the crowd could sort of applaud him. And there's a part in the film Zulu, one of his famous films, Zulu, where all, all the natives are all like stamping on the ground like a march. And Nod got all the crowds, I think there's 50, 60,000 people to do to do all this stamping on the ground. It, it sounded like the Zulus in the film. And mm. It was just incredible. It would, it would have been great to have been recorded. I mean, Stanley Baker, the main actor, he was killing himself laughing. He was laughing so much, you know, but uh, it was a great festival for us that mark well is that sort of the beginning of the glam sound that stomping rhythm 
Yeah, yeah, that was like I said, what it was when we recorded Cause I Love You, we thought it was a bit sort of sloppy. We weren't too happy. With, well, we, we were a bit sort of like uh, not too sure about this. And so that's what we did. We just put the, the, the stamping and the, and the hand clapping uh, on it to try and sort of make it uh, a bit more credible, if you like. And that just carried on for, for the record for quite a few records after that, because that's what we, we became known for, Mark. Well, Slade's such an interesting band. So you have Naughty Holder, who's the singer, who's this very powerful singer, and he's got this kind of voice that just totally cuts through everything. And Incredible. you know, before you know, before Bon Scott and ACDC, or you know, like he just he just you know, obviously was a front man who um you know really had a huge presence. He got control of the crowd with purely with his voice. It's amazing, right? And then you have Dave Hill, who's dressing with his colorblind uh, fashion <laughs> yeah, sense, but just it. you know, the, 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 he was the one who sort of brought the glam into that's uh, the, the glam band. And you got Jim Lee, who's co-writing the songs and playing bass. And then you're just this very powerful drummer. Yeah. Um, and on one hand, you have this really hard rock edge, and on the other hand, I mean. You know, you guys are covering Martha, my dear, with a violin. Yeah. And and, you know, something like Cause I Love You is obviously very catchy. And and you you guys also brought the hooks. So it was a sort of hard rock meets this, you know, hooky pop music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not sure whether that was intentional, Mark. It was just the, the way it worked. I mean, before we had any success, we were, we were mainly playing Tamla Motown songs, would you believe? We did a lot, a lot of Motown um, songs in, in our particular show then. And uh, it just went. And I remember the one time, it's, it's only in a, a small um, hotel sort of club scene. And when the disc jockey, he, I remember the end of the night, he finished with uh, Get Down and Get With It with Little Richard. We thought, ah, that sounds good. And right. so we, we basically learned that, mainly for stage. And it used to, it used to go down fantastic, you know, because we could include the audience in it. And, um, and that's when Chas said, Chas Chandler, who managed us and produced our records, and that's when he said, that should be, the, that should be your first single. Although that's, that's going to be your first hit. That's right. Right. Yeah, that was kind of the breakthrough Slade song. It wasn't, yes. and then Because I Love You was number one, but Get Down, Get With It. And it also sort of sets this template because you're involving the audience so much. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it became a thing with us, you know, because, I mean, with, around the, the, those days, Mark, there was a lot of um, university gigs that were on. We were always with uh, quite a few bands on. And the, the, a lot of, most of these bands used to just stand there with uh, looking at the floor, playing, and you know, not involving the audience. And that's when we started really in, involving the audience. And it, it just worked for us. And that was a reputation we had. And uh, we had it for well, for so well for all through our career. We had that, you know, just to involve the audience. I mean, I remember when I used to go and see uh, bands. I got bored if they were just standing uh, standing there with their heads looking at the floor and not speaking to the audience. You know, so well, I I could have stayed home and just played records than than sort of come to the concerts, but uh, and that it was it was a conscious uh, thing was for us to in, in, include the audience, Mark. At what point did it become clear that glam was a scene? Um, I think the the guy who really started that was Mark Boland. Right. 
Yeah, he, he was the guy who really started all that. And then uh, the band, sort of, we followed suit. And there, there was Swedes as well, the other, other English band who were friends of ours. And there's a lot a lot of bands around that time, like, like Roxy Music were around as well, and Roy Wood with Wizard. So it just it just sort of snowballed, really. Yeah, you had bands like in like the Status Quo, which you know was sort of the psychedelic band, psychedelic band in the '60s, and they became sort of another. I mean, you guys were touring together. There was another. Yeah, sort of, yeah. They become sort of a harder rocking band that also had that kind of glam scene. Yeah, we, thing well, going on. We, we became real friends. That was, that was our very first tour in the UK, Mark and the promoter, because Quo were just coming up th- through the ranks again, and he suggested that us and Quo tour together. And it was a great tour. We've done quite a few shows with them. We did some shows in the States with Quo as well. Did you have rivalries with any of these bands, like, you know, the Sweet no, or something it, like that? It, 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 it was just, we were just all friends. We were all friends and there to do our own thing, you know. And uh, we toured Australia with Quo. We done quite a few shows with them. And we're still friends to this day. How How important was it? For you guys to try to break through to the US? Well, I think it was it was the only charity in that particular in the early six uh, mid, mid yeah, the early sort of seventies, it was the only charity that we we'd never cracked. And uh, I remember our very first tour was with um, Humble Pie with Steve Marriott. And and that was a great tour. But the only thing is, is I, I'm not sure at that particular time whether the uh, whether America was ready for the glam rock thing. You know, I don't think it, it was it not, not quite ready at that time. Why, why was that? I, I don't know, because I think a lot of the bands then were still, like I said, were just long guitar solos, just facing the floor. And, you know, and... Um, and when we went on, it was just like sort of uh, like sort of madness going on stage. And, and I'm not sure whether the, the American crowd knew how to take us. When I see clips of, of Slade from back then, Nadi is, you know, he's he seems like a very happy front man. You know, oh, he's, he got, a, he's got a smile yeah. on his face. And there are a lot of bands that do not look like happy bands. And Slade seems like a happy band and maybe... Yeah. Maybe the U.S. wasn't ready for a happy band because, you know, everyone was too depressed in the early 70s in the U.S. I, I, I think that's exactly right, Mark. You know, I think we were sort of, uh, it was too soon for us, but um, we did quite a few tours there, but uh, it, it wasn't happening for us. You know, sort of, it's, it's almost like they weren't ready for a band to be having a good time on stage. You know, I mean, we did some stress. The first tour with Humble Pie was great. And then I remember touring with ZZ Top before the Beards, you know, and, and that was that was a great tour for us as well. What was what was the process of how songs would be brought into your band and you guys would work them up? I mean, I know you co-wrote some of them, yeah. uh, you know, Nadi and Jim co-wrote a lot of them. Like, how how did you guys work up songs? Well, we we used to rehearse in this uh, in this old uh, schoolhouse. We used to uh, rehearse there, just in one of the old classrooms. And uh, Nod and Jim would uh, had already written the song, and they'd bring it to Dave and myself, and we just used to sit round and just sort of they would play play it on on acoustic guitar. And then we'd all put our our points forward of how we could um, how we could arrange it. And uh, it, it went like that, really. 
You know, that that's how it went. I remember when we did Monroe Crazy now, Dave and myself hadn't heard that song until we actually were in the studio. And um, that was basically done. I think it was either the second or third take. Mum were all crazy now. Not and Jim played it to Dave and myself. We had a bit of spare time in the studio. And then we put that down so quickly. went down really quickly, quickly, Mark. And uh, and that became a really big hit for us. When you, when you heard that song for the first time, did you think, oh, this one's a big hit? Or do you never know until it sort of comes out? Well, well, me personally, I'm, I'm always a bit apprehensive. I'm, not, I'm never quite sure, you know, when, until we finished it. And um, but, Mum, we're all crazy now. As it happens, Mark, is that uh, when when we finished that, I knew straight away. I felt, or I felt straight away, this is really good. And the same with "Come On, Feel the Noise." You know that uh, it, it, you can hear it straight away. You know that uh, this this is good. This is good. You know, and it's a nice, nice feeling. Yeah, no, come on, feel the noise is this, this anthem. And it just sort of kept kept getting new life. I mean, Quiet Riot had a huge uh-huh. hit here with that and kind of breathed new life into that version of Slade at the time. And um, I think Oasis covered it at some point yeah. as well. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, that's what brought us back in, in into the uh, into the public eye in, in, in the States when Quiet Riot recorded and they took it to number one in the states you know and uh and he gave us a new um lease of life life over there mark you know sort of thing but uh yeah it, i mean it's one of my favorite songs actually the slave song it, it's far um come on feel the noise yeah I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit but when a quiet ride had that that hit you became embraced by sort of a new audience because glam wasn't something that was happening in the early 80s anymore it was more like call you know it would have been i guess considered heavy metal at that time That's so right. you, you were playing to so when you would play then and you had a hit in the states finally you were playing to heavy metal audiences how were those audiences different from who you'd been playing to earlier well, I, I no, I think the, the least with the, if you want to call them the heavy metal audience, they, they were more into listening, you know, sort of. I mean, we uh, did quite a few shows, and, and then the tour was booked with Ozzy Osbourne. That was like 84 or 85, you know, and because I, I was really on the strength of Quiet Riot with Come On, Feel the Noise, and that brought us back into the foreground again. You know, sort of, because Ozzy is uh, one of our friends anyway. So, we, but but sadly, that we can only do a few shows with him because Jim Lee, our bass player, he went down with hepatitis, so we had right. to knock two on the head. But that's that's when we released uh, a song called "Run Runaway," when the video was on MTV all the time. Yeah, I saw something. I saw a note about um, you were out partying with Ozzy one night and came home and Sharon came at you guys with a shotgun or something like that? That's right, yes. Well, well, we're in this bar drinking. There's the same bar we always used to drink. And then the the owner wanted to kick us out. And so we bought some uh, wine and some beer. And, and Ozzy said, Let, let's go back to the uh, my house, you know, and uh, carry on. And he had his driver with him, a guy named Pete. And I said, I remember saying to Pete, is this a good idea, Pete? And he says, no. And I, <laughs> I, I said, I said, is Sharon in? He said, yes. <laughs> and I said, I said, Ozzy, I think I'll give it a miss. No, no, no. And he starts swearing at me, like in, in, in true Aussie fashion. Anyway, we decided to go back to the house and we're halfway up the drive. 
And I got my head down, carrying some beer, and I was just, I like, I was just shout, run! And I look up, and Sharon's out, of, out of the bedroom window with a shotgun, and uh, the the beer goes up in the air, and we start running down the driveway, and we just get out of the gates, and she fires the gun, wow! And, and she she blast, I just had a brand new top of the range BMW and she just blasts the side of the car and uh, I was shaking and I, and I haven't drunk alcohol since and, uh, and all I remember was Ozzy running into the house I could hear them fighting in the bedroom and, and like I said and I went home and I haven't touched alcohol since. <laughs> so that was it. That was it for you and drinking was Sharon yeah. Osborne in a shotgun and yeah, with a shotgun, bullets, yeah. bullets flying. Wow. Well, I guess I guess if anything's going to sober up something like that, I mean that's pretty dramatic. So, but I will say one thing. I think um, I think if it wasn't for Sharon, I, I don't know whether Ozzy would be here now. I mean, sort of, uh, she, she's done so fantastic for it. But she did with us. She managed us in the states, and that's when we had Run Runaway uh, released, and um, the video was on MTV all the time. So let's go back to 73 and you guys are the biggest live band in Britain. You had uh, squeeze me, please me was your number one song, your latest one. Um, you played Earl's court and then you had this horrific car crash. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's incredible. Mark, I mean, people often ask me about it. And I've got no idea what happened with that car, car smash. I've got no idea. And I, it was I was on the road to where, where I lived in my hometown, and I used to drive by there every day afterwards, and it means nothing to me. It still doesn't. And funny enough, when uh, when I came out of hospital, and we started to rehearse, and we, we came back to the States for the first tour, and our agent in New York, he arranged for me to go and see a friend of his who was a brain specialist. And I was t telling him about the, the accident. And I said, I've got no idea about I've done, it. It doesn't mean anything to me. I've got no idea. I said, I, I don't even know who was driving the car. And he said, you never will. He said, it's just the, the brain, the way the brain just sort of switches off on the moment of impact. He said, that's it. He said, uh, he said, you know, don't even think about it. He said, I mean, like I said, Mark, I used to drive by every day and he meant nothing. It means nothing to me. Yeah, it was. So you you were in the car, your your girlfriend at the time, Angela, was in the car and she was she was killed in the crash. That's right. You were, you were in hospital for a long time and then you had amnesia. Yeah. Um, how much did you remember or not remember at that point uh, uh, about the accident or anyway or just just uh, anything oh no well every, every time i woke up i was almost like uh, I, i've got no idea from the day before you know uh hadn't got a clue you know i was if i was in in my uh, my own apartment in, in my hometown it was okay i could wake up and i recognized the apartment but regarding the day before it meant nothing to me and uh, it wasn't until we started recording again, which was difficult also, that uh, a guy named Alan O'Duffy, who was the engineer, and he, he was the one who recommended me, uh, he said, you should keep a diary and, and write everything down. And that's what I started doing. And, and I still do to this day. It's just a matter of course now, Mark. Right. 
Well, yeah. And then you, cause you have a book, uh, look what I done and, yeah. uh, named after one of your songs. So after this crash, um, you're, you're keeping this diary, you're getting back together with the band. Did you remember the songs? No, that was another thing that was really frustrating. I mean, I just couldn't remember anything. You know, once once I started, I was okay. But I remember the classic was once when we were number one in the charts with the the song "Squeeze Me, Please Me," and we'd be on tour. And um, and Nolly Hall said, "Come on, we'll go back on and do "Squeeze Me, Please Me" as the encore." And I was going, "How does it go? How does he go? Sing it to me, you know?" Because I'd already recorded that before the accident, and um, not and Jimmy Jimmy Lee had to sing it to me before we went on stage, you know, and, and things like that were very frustrating, Mark. Did it did it come right back to you when they cued you with it, or did you? Well, yeah. Well, once once I knew it, or once I heard it like Jim Lee's, then it was okay. But before that, it was completely gone, gone from me. So you didn't have to completely relearn the entire catalog. Once I I, I started playing them, it was okay. Everything was okay. It's it's a it's a strange animal uh, amnesia. It's very very strange. Physically and and otherwise, did you feel like you were the same drummer after that, or did things change? Um, it, the only thing that uh, was uh, uh, when I first went back on the road again because I had uh, five ribs broken and a, and a fractured skull. When if when I was exerting myself, I could feel my rib cage was really hurting me, and um, and the top of my head was like I think that's just being burned by the lights and i saw a specialist in new york actually and uh and he just he just checked me out he said all it is it's, it's like the uh, the tissues between the bones of your rib cage he said they haven't stretched in properly they're all new he said they haven't stretched in properly yet he said that it'll be okay in a few months and it was it was okay it was it was difficult at the start mark but um i i remember it was the best thing i did how how long was it before you were playing with them again after the accident? Straight away. I mean, I was in hospital for six weeks and um, I was unconscious for five days. I think somebody told me, I was, you know, I was in the hospital for about six weeks and then I went straight back on the road or straight back in the, in the studio. Wow. It was hard because I said I had two broken legs as well, and that they hadn't quite mended, and one broken arm, and so it was uh, physically it was a bit difficult at the start. But I remember the surgeon saying to me, "Get back to work straight away," and I said, "I really don't feel like it." He said, "If you don't, you never will," and it was the best advice I was given. And it was hard at the start, but it was the best advice I was given, Mark. Was there pressure to just keep going because you guys had so much momentum as a band at that point that you didn't want to, you know, the band didn't want to cool off? I think so. I think so because we we had uh, we, I think I was in hospital for about six weeks, and um, so there was six weeks when the, the guys hadn't done we hadn't done anything at all, and it was just straight back on on in, on the road and uh, touring uh, Europe and the states uh, and Australia. You know, it, it physically it was hard for me at first, but uh, it was it was the best thing I did. Was was everyone in the band pretty sensitive to what you were going through? I mean, was it a I, I, Good time with everyone. I, I so. it, it's hard to explain sometimes, though. I mean, with, with the mental thing of uh, with the amnesia, people don't really understand uh, how frustrating that is. 
it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it sounds it's incredibly a, frustrating. It's a, it's a strange animal, Mark. Now to just like have such a major, major physical injuries and mental, you know, impairment and to, to go back to your job that quickly, I would think would be very tough. But I, I think it was the best thing I did. But I remember the surgeon saying to me, get back on the road. And I remember saying to him, I really don't feel like it. And he said, if you don't, you never will. Right. And, and it was, it was so, it was, he was so right. I mean, it was difficult, but it was the best thing I did, Mark. Did you guys record Merry Christmas, everybody, after your accident? Yes, that was done. That was done in the, in the December of the same year, 1973. And that, that was when we recorded that in New York in the summertime. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So that was recorded in the U.S.? Sorry? So that was recorded in New York? It was, it was recorded the record plant in New York. And I remember um, it was, uh, I think it was about 100 degrees heat wave outside. And then we were singing Merry Christmas. And we, we had some strange looks from the American technicians, believe me. And would you believe, Mark, at first we didn't want to release it, you know, we, we, we weren't sure. And, and I remember our record producer, manager, Chas Chandler, said to us, I don't care what you lost, say, <laughs> this, is, this is coming out. <laughs> well, because back then, a lot of rock bands, they were putting out their Christmas song. You know, John Lennon had his Christmas song a couple of years yeah. earlier. and There's uh, quite a few that year. There's Elton John, Roy Wood, Greg Lake. There's quite, quite a few bands had... Um... It seems like it's a song that everyone in England knows. Yeah. And... They play, you know, every you know holiday season. It shows up on the Doctor Who uh, Christmas yeah, special, it's, holiday special. It, it, um, it's, it's everywhere. Well, well, I'm in a supermarket. Uh, they're playing over the system. I remember the funniest incident. Mark was. I remember on tour that year, 1973, and I was I was in this hotel. I was going down to the ground floor in the elevator, and Merry Christmas was playing on the system in, in the elevator. And this guy didn't know me. Oh, he didn't see me. He was standing behind me. He says, I'm so fed up of this record. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I turned around and faced him. He went, he went blood red. <laughs> he didn't know where to look. <laughs> You said, well, the drumming's pretty good, though, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I, I just had to face you, Mark, and that was enough. <laughs> well, you know, in the U.S., it's like we don't like like that song just doesn't get played. And, and you would think that that sort of thing would translate across the ocean. I mean, oh, how many more bad versions of Little Drummer Boy do we have to put up with over here? Yeah, but um, is it is it is it the right thing for the states, though, Mark? I mean, we thought it was a bit too too um, English or European for America. I don't know, and I don't think it ever got any radio play in the states. I'm not, no, I don't think so either. But it's no, catchy. I don't, I don't know. I, again, it would. It, it, I'm always I'm always up for some other songs in the mix because it's just the same ones over and over. But you know, yeah. all I, you know, I mean, all I want for Christmas is you is fine. But you know, mess, Merry, throw a little, you know, Slade, Merry Christmas, everybody in there, and yeah. it'll be a brighter holiday season. Probably, did, did John Lennon get played uh, in the states, to Mark? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, think, that yeah. that was that was a big hit. Uh, the same in that was a big hit in England. You know, wonderful Christmas time. That was later. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was you know at nineteen eighty. Paul's Paul's Christmas song gets played, but but yeah, no. But it's that's the, that's a that's a fun one. So that's the end of nineteen seventy three. I think that was your sixth number one. Um, when did you guys make that movie Flame? That was in nineteen seventy five. 
uh, Mark. I remember we showed that in the stage, but I mean, there was dead silence in the film because I, I don't think anybody really understood it. I think more so our accents more than anything, you know, and also the, the plot of the film. I, I don't think it was a bit alien to, to the stage at the time. I have not seen the movie. It looks like it kind of gets into a little bit of the ugly side of the record music business. That was the criticism we had. Uh, but when, when when the film company, uh, they just made the film That'll Be The Day and Stardust, and they wanted a real band to make this, this other film that they had um, on the cards, and they approached us and we said, yeah. But we said, we don't, we don't want to make a run-around jump jumping you know happy-go-lucky film we want a real good gritty film and richard Longcrane, the director and andrew birkin who wrote the script came with us on, on one american tour just to get to know the business and for us to tell him stories of what happened not just with us with other bands that we knew and um but the thing is it's sort of um it did go against us in a way mark because um People don't want to see bands arguing uh, or sort of actually arguing and break up in the film, but we're not actually playing Slade. And that was that was the thing, was uh, that was the hardest thing to get across. We kept on saying to the critics, we're not playing Slade, we're, we're, we're a made-up band for this, you know, and that's what they couldn't uh, differentiate, you know. But, I mean, it was great for making it, but I think it did go against this mark. Did you did you guys make that when you were because you had like two years where you were living in the US? Did you make it then or was it after you guys got back? Uh, or maybe before you went? It was before. It was before, Mark. And I remember the when uh, around the St. Louis area was, was quite good for us. I remember we were there for about nearly a week, I think. And um they sent for the film and shot, shot the film in St. Louis at a theatre in St. Louis. And there was dead silence throughout the film. I, I think more, more so that no one could understand what we were saying because of our accents. And, 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 the, and the story wasn't really that sort of common to, uh, to the American public, you know. But uh, it, 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 we had great, a great time making it. And, and I'm glad we did what we did. Did you, did you enjoy acting? It was okay. I mean, sort of like, I mean, sort of with the amnesia with me trying to return, learn lines, but it was okay because I was saying to Richard, the um, the director, I said, there's going to be a problem with me, Richard. He said, no, sir. We just do it bit by bit. He said, we can just cut it all together. And uh, and that was it, really. It's sort of, the only thing is, it does spoil you for going to the going to the movies now because you know how things are done. You know, I can't I can't watch a film the same way anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. What? How were those two years that you spent in the U.S.? Was that a was that a good experience or frustrating or both? Uh, it, I, I think it was a great experience, but uh, it, it, mainly we wanted to try and crack the states, and that's why we decided to stay there. But it, ultimately, it didn't particularly work for us. I think mainly because we could we can we can never get radio play, Mark. They're like on AM or FM, is either too heavy for AM or or not. You know, it was it wasn't working. There's was no MTV then either, and the only time we really got uh, radio plays was when if we went into a town where wherever the concert was and sometimes the radio stations would co-promote the concert and so uh, we could go and do a really good interview on, on that particular station but um it was very difficult for us in the 70s mark 
what what do you think the difficulty was like what was what was not translating I think uh, because the glam rock really hadn't, hadn't, hadn't moved across to the States then. And uh, and I, um, the only time it worked, the first two with Humble Pie was great. And when we two was Easy Top, it was great. But they used to, we used to get some strange bills on some strange bills. And um, I, I don't know why, but it, it didn't, it wasn't working for us, Mark. And we couldn't get radio play anyway, you know. But uh, it was almost like it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet had some hits over here, but they were a little, they were almost on sort of the more bubblegum edge of, yeah, of yeah. glam. And and you guys I, had a harder edge to it. Yeah. I, I did the Sweet too much in the States. I'm not really sure as they did, I'm, did they? I'm, I don't even know. I just remember no, hearing Ballroom Blitz, Ballroom Blitz and Fox on the Run. And later, Love is Like Oxygen was a yeah, few that's years it. later. I mean, yeah. But it actually quite funny because... Um, just a few years ago, about two or three years ago, I made a CD with Andy Scott, for the guitarist from Sweet, and Susan right. Quattro. And Susan Quattro, we made a CD together. And um, and that went, it was, went really, uh, really well, especially in Australia, you know, where it went top 20 in Australia. And uh, we actually toured there together. Nice. When you when you guys went back to England after uh, your your time in the states, it was kind of the beginning of the punk rock scene. Uh-huh. Um, how does how was Slade sort of perceived while you know like the Sex Pistols and the Clash oh, and all them were coming up? Well, we, we were we were totally out of favor, Mark. You know, I mean, we we went back to playing small clubs. We still wanted to tour. We still wanted to work together because we enjoyed you know, working together. And so we just had to swallow our pride. And, and we went back to playing small clubs, which which I really enjoyed. I, I enjoy a smaller club more than anything because at least you can see the audience. And, you know, to me, the sound is a lot better. And we did that for a few years, you know, and uh, I, I really enjoyed that particular period. And then, and then Quiet Riot had their big number one hit yeah, here. And then... I mean, it's amazing that, you know, sort of thing. And, and I don't think that their version was not that much uh, uh, different to the slave version, but um, it, it just happened. It just happened for them. And that's what sort of got promoted or people interested in, in us again. Wasn't there? Wasn't there some festival? Was it the Reading Festival that you guys yeah, the were? Reading, that, that's what. That's what really brought us back in the UK, Mark. I mean, as it happened, um, Ozzy Osbourne dropped out because he thought he, he felt his new band wasn't ready, so he dropped out, and his um, his particular slot on the festival was given to us or offered to us. And, and I remember Noddy Holder calling me, you know, to say about it. And we were just laughing so much about it on the phone. And we said, and I said, well, what have we got to lose? Let's go for it. And we didn't, and on the day, Mark, we didn't even, even have passes. We had to walk through with with the crowd going into the festival. We're carrying our cases and guitars. We, and everybody was saying, because we weren't built, everybody was saying, what are you lot doing here? You know, we're playing here this afternoon. <laughs> we're playing here tonight. And like I said, we didn't have passes we worked our way backstage and um we just went on and, and we had nothing to lose mark and we just went for it and it worked for us and one of those things where you guys just sort of went over the audience and had everyone stomping along with you that was like 1980 right yeah 
I mean, it was great because I said uh, that was our stage show. We always in, 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 involved the audience, and, and Nolly Hardy was the was classic at that kind of thing, and it, and it it just happened. It just worked for us, and uh, and uh, because it was recorded uh, by the BBC in the UK for uh, for uh, to be played on radio. And we bought the tapes from them and, and released um, released some of the songs from the festival, and the, and they charted again. So, and then you guys had this resurgence, um, and then you were touring. Jim got hepatitis, and was yeah. that was that the end of was that the end of you guys touring? I, I know that you yes, didn't... yes, it was. I mean, that that was the stage. That was when we got we got to do the tour with Ozzy in the stage. And Ron Runaway had gone top 20 because of MTV, really. And um, Sharon, like Ozzy's uh, wife and manager, we were offered the, offered, uh, the, the support slot, the opening slot on the Ozzy tour. And that would have been, I think that would have been great for us. But like, like you say, Mark, Jim went down with hepatitis and we, we had to knock the tour on the head, sadly. And did you guys tour again after that or was that just it? I think that's I think we did a few few UK uh, few UK shows and some shows in Europe, but uh, that was basically it, Mark. I mean, Noddy Holdy didn't want to tour anymore. You know, we're all, we're all a bit disillusioned. You know, I think uh, yeah, and so it was basically it. So so when Slade the original for some you know called it quits, was it were you guys still getting along or was at that oh, point yeah. where people? Yeah, yeah, there was never any problem there. It was just that um, uh, Nod wanted to try other things. You went into doing a bit of acting on TV. And uh, no, there was a, we've always been mates. It's just one of those things. I mean, we started from school, you know, so you can't just take all that away. It doesn't disappear, you know, like overnight. And um, yeah, I mean, we still kept in touch. I see Nod. A few because he lives in Manchester now, and I live over here in Denmark. I mean, about three times a year, about 30 like musicians, actors, writers, we get together and have a, a lunch in London. And Nod and myself are always there, and we have, we have a great time together. And you were you played with Dave Hill, uh, in yeah. Slade 2, and then I think it was just called Slade for a while. That's and, right. and so, so, so the two of the four of you had had the name. Did the four of you ever get back together at all, or, or do the four of you uh, sort of no, nothing, nothing at all? I mean, sort of, um, no, it's just Dave and myself doing it. Not, not didn't want to do it anymore, and Jim was doing some solo things with his brother, and Dave and myself just go carry on touring the world, really having a great time. Have you had promoters come to you and say, look, if the original four would play together, you could do this festival or this big show or this tour? We, we were offered a few things, offered a few like big shows, but uh, Noddy Holder didn't want to do it anymore, Mark. So that was it. We, could, we couldn't replace Nod. So, yeah. So Nod doesn't want to do it, period. That's no, just, he's, no, he's period, done with just, that. Just period. You know, that that's it, you know. And then, and then you were doing this this band with Dave, but then what? Like 2020, you're out of that. What happened there? Well, I mean, sort of the strange things is I get a strange. I was I was ill. I, I the tendons sort of snapped in in, in my legs, and uh, that was mainly through playing. And uh, then I had a stroke. Uh, no, the stroke came after, and, and Dave Hill just sent me a cold email saying he didn't want to work with me, and he doesn't want me anymore in the band. You know, so I thought, that's it, you know. Was so, that while you were recuperating from a stroke? Yeah, yeah. That was when I was recuperating from a stroke, and uh, and I still today 
Um, don't know why. You know, I, I would love to find out one day why. So you guys haven't talked at all? No. Dave and myself haven't talked, no. Yeah. I mean, and you've known him for 50 something yeah, well, years. Yeah, I, so. I, I started the band with Dave in 1963. You know, um, we've been working together in the same in a band uh, in, since 1963, and I've yet to find out why. Wow. Well, that seems like a shame. Yeah. Um, it was a shame. Yeah. Well, and so so you've been doing, but you've still been making music. You've got Down Powell's Occasional Flames. Yeah. Um, now, is that a reference to the movie Flames, Flame? No, I think... Um, I, I think there was. I think there was a reason for that. For that particular reason, to try and keep a connection somehow, you know, sort of like so people. So we, we we couldn't think of an original name. So it was Paul, the uh, lyricist, and uh, one of the guitarists who actually thought of the name. You know, so we thought, yeah, it's good. We can we can keep a, there's a connection there. So uh, and that was really good, Mark. It seems it seems like those songs. I mean, a they're they're very catchy again, um, and also that they have this kind of reflective quality where you're sort of like you know looking back on you know what, what the Care Home Weekly Wednesday glam rock sing along yeah, yeah. midlife crisis and yeah. uh, I I love the title. It isn't really Christmas until Naughty starts to sing. And I know well we, we, that that was my idea, and uh, I said because uh, people always mentioned about uh, they always. Um, recall Nod when he's singing or when he shouts it's Christmas at the end of the song and I, and, and I, I put that idea forward you know sort of thing yeah. so so how much writing do you do in this and like and what's your process on all of that uh, well I, I, I really um, write lyrics Mark I, I can't sing I'm totally tone deaf you know, and um, when I was to write with Jim Lee, it took me a long time because I was trying to sing what I had in my head, and it was it took forever because I was I have the worst vocal voice <laughs> ever, you know, and uh, and 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 then it worked out that Noddy Holder and Jim Lee were doing it so much quicker and better, so that that became the writing format. But I've been doing some lyrics uh, on the occasional flames, been writing lyrics again, which is uh, it's been it's nice for me. How do you how do you approach it? Do you do you do the lyrics and then hand them off and say, okay, here's some lyrics for a song? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I sort of have an idea of a melody in my head, but like I said, because I'm totally tone deaf, I have to sort of sing it what I think to either Paul or Les in the occasional flames, and I'll say, right. sing it back to me, see if it's what I'm, I'm thinking. And uh, a, a lot of time, you have to change it around a lot, you know. But uh, yeah, they're, they're very patient with me because of my voice, <laughs> so so it, it's it's quite a nice, good relationship. So you have just just my cup of tea was an album that came out uh, last yeah. year. Yeah. Uh, you had a song in celebration of the World Cup called "We're Still Singing for You." Yeah, and that was this year. Um, anything else that you've worked on, or any other? Yeah, I've uh, been doing some work with some other musicians in, in the UK as well, and also some Danish musicians. I mean, I'm just getting to know them. Apparently, they 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 were very well known back in the seventies and eighties here in Denmark, and and they they're great musicians. And uh, we've been recording together as well, and it's uh, you know, sort of uh, you know. So we'll just see what happens there. How important is it to you to keep making music? I love it. I, I just sort of, I, I just, yeah, I really get off on it, Mark. And it is something that's been with me for so long. And uh, the main thing is, Marcus, I don't find it a chore. I just love 
doing it. You know, I mean, lots of times uh, if I go around to see local bands around here near where we live in Denmark, because I always get up with the bands and have a play, you know, sort of thing. And uh, it's great. I, my, my classic, I must tell you this, Mark, I was dealing with this uh, drum dealer, vintage drum dealer in Seattle. Let me just go on via email. I mean, just took. I don't, I don't know how it came about, and I was sort of telling him that Ringo Starr was one of my favourite drummers, and he said, "Oh, a friend of mine is playing with Ringo in, in his band, and they're touring at the moment." And it came about that they were doing uh, a show here in Denmark. So I contacted this guy in in, um, in Seattle, and he put through to a guy named Greg, Greg Bisonetti, who was playing uh, drums for Ringo's band, and right. he contacted them, and um, he um, they I got my name on the guest list, myself and my wife. And uh, we got there, and I met Greg, and he says, come on backstage. And I said, well, to meet Ringo. I said, well, I, I, have, we, I did meet him in the 70s. He came to a Slade concert in Los Angeles. And anyway, so we were talking backstage with Ringo. He's just, he's just one of the guys, Ringo. There's nothing, no ego, nothing about him whatsoever. It's fantastic. And um, we were just talking, and he said to me, do you want to get up on stage and play? I said, you try and stop me. He said, because wow. I, I said, you, I spent, he said, I spent most of my time down the front singing. He says, on the last two songs, which I do down the front singing, you can get up on my kit and play. And it was with a little help from my friends and uh, give peace a chance. I played the last two songs of the concert and, and I've got the photographs to prove it. And he was, he was fantastic, Mark. Oh, that's great. And I, I, you know, first well, before the show, we just and I didn't know how much he wanted to talk about the Beatles, you know, but he was so fed up with it, you know. But he was great because that they're my favorite band, and I've got so many films of them, especially their early tours of the stage when they're playing the big arenas with no monitors, nothing at all. I said, We've had no monitors, he said, Well, they weren't around then, he said, We were just playing as a band. He said, No one could hear us anyway because of the kids screaming you know so right. we, he said a lot of the time we were playing different things on stage was who, who was the first drummer who you idolized was it ringo uh there was ringo really and there's a guy named um, bobby elliott from the hollies all right course, yeah yeah the Hollies. this is when graham nash was still in the band then and we did it we played in a in a, in a like a, a ballroom with the original hollies then when graham nash was still in the band and um and bobby allison just joined the band then and he, he's, he's one of my favorite drummers as well what was your what was your first drum kit uh olympic i don't know whether you know that in in the states it was a very i'll talk about a basic basic kit you know i mean there's no skins on the bottom i mean very tiny drums almost like um like a toy a toy kit really and then my kit after that was a premiere how old were you when you got your first kit uh i think i was about 15 i think i went up on my about 15 maybe 16 i think yeah and did you always know drumming was what you wanted to do? Yeah, yeah. I, like I said, I'm tone deaf, and I can't play. I don't. I can't play any other, other instrument but the drums, you know. And uh, I remember my first Ludwig kit was I bought exactly the same kit that Ringo played because Ringo was playing it, and uh, I bought the same, the same, uh, the same kit, and then. Luckily, when we went to uh, the States and I got sponsored by Ludwig Drums in Chicago, and that was fantastic. 
Right. I think you mentioned an email that you were at some convention with like 75 drummers in Chicago yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Well, okay. It was Ludwig's 75th anniversary. I think it's around 1984 or 85 mark. And uh, Bill Ludwig III invited, that was how many, it was their anniversary, 75th anniversary. So he invited 75 drummers from, the, from around the world um to to chicago for the weekend and can you imagine 75 drummers in the same hotel for the weekend yeah i was gonna ask what happens when you get 75 drummers together it seems like the setup for a drummer joke it, it was just mad it was just mad i mean sort of um everybody was there i mean but the thing is um Ludwig drums had dinner suits made for everybody, but they had all our uh, all our sizes about a month beforehand, and they had dinner suits made for everybody for the the big photograph. And there was like um, Bill Ludwig the second and Bill Ludwig the third and Joe Morello down the front, and just seventy five drummers t- all tiered in the background, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, you know, for the for the big poster. They made you suits. Yeah, they made dinner suits for everybody. But the thing wow. is, like, uh, we couldn't keep them. You know, they said, well, we said, well, they've been made for us, especially, don't care. Well, there's the security on the doors to make sure you don't take off with the suits. <laughs> so, but uh, Wait, you didn't uh, get to keep the suits? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. They we made you made, suits and then you didn't get to keep the suits. No, they made the suits, especially for us, each individual. But what they do with them? them. I don't, I've got no idea what happened to them, Mark. Come on, Ludwig drums. That just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know it doesn't make any sense at all. You know, because they're all saying, you know, well, what's the point? You know, they're, they're made, you know, personally for us, you know, with our sizes. But yeah, right. security, security on this bigger sort of warehouse place where we took the photograph in Chicago and uh, security makes sure that we didn't take off with the suits. <laughs> what do you have to do? Like take off all your the suit and then just like walk on your underwear or something? We had our sort of casual gear on that we wore before. Yeah. Before. All right. Yeah. All right. That makes more uh, sense. Yeah. And I'm still friends with Bill Ludwig the third now. And sadly, it's not Ludwig drums as, as we knew anymore, you know, and, and he, he couldn't afford to keep it, sadly. Uh, something his grandfather started and he, he couldn't uh, he couldn't keep it. But he has his own um, he, has, he has his own drum company now. Do you have a kit set up in your home? Uh, yeah, but only electric kit. My, my neighbors wouldn't be very happy if I had uh, <laughs> this acoustic kit in, in, in the house. And and how's your hearing after all these years? And what do you do to protect your ears? Uh, nothing. But I I did uh, I did have a problem with my ears when I was when I was about um, well. 10, 12 years old, and I have really many problems with my ears. And so with this loud music, it hasn't helped any, but it, it, it doesn't bother me, if you know what I mean. So, so I'm, I'm sort of pretty deaf, and uh, it, it gets to a point where none of my family can stay in the same room when I'm watching TV because it's too loud. <laughs> but now I have a, I have a setup, Mark, where I've got, I've got the headset so I can have my own volume, you know, mm-hmm. So do you go back and listen to those old Slade records? And are there any that are your favorites? Only a few. My, my favorite one, I'm not sure whether it was that well known in, in, in the U.S., was a, a song called Far, Far Away. I'm not sure whether it was pretty well known in the States at the time. It was from the movie that we made. Right. And uh, that, that's that's what I play a lot. You know, I play a lot. And, uh, yeah, I think I do play quite a few because it always brings back memories when we recorded them. 
And I still have like uh, memories of, you know, in the studio doing things, you know. So uh, I love working in the studio. So it's uh, it just brings back a lot of memories. You think you're going to tour with the occasional flames again? And that, that would that would be nice. That would be nice. And the like to some nice, great Danish musicians who I've been uh, working with. And um, but we'll see what happens. That the the door is open. I think I'm I'm ready when if if the guys or the opportunity to arise arise, Mark. Thank you so much. It's really been great talking to you. I really appreciate well, you. Uh, really take care, Mark. Take care. That's it for episode 54 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Don Powell for guiding us through Slade's colorful history and being so candid about his own challenges. You can learn more about him at the Don Powell official website, donpowellofficial.com, and in Lisa Ling Falkenberg's book with him, Look What I Done, My Life in Slade. Check out the music from Don Powell's Occasional Flames at occasional-flames at co.uk and follow the band on Twitter at Powell Flames. Then you can start playing those old Slade albums with the volume turned way up. Their third album, Slade, that's S-L-A-Y-E-D, is a rock-solid place to start, and Sladeist contains a lot of the hits. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who feels the noise for a living. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tune in, and tell your friends. And next week, we'll have another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.